0: Thanks, Randy, for that uh, reminder of of who God is and who we are, that we are his beloved children. It's great to have Randy back uh, singing with us. If you didn't know, just less than, well, yeah, thank you. Was it, what, six months ago that you were diagnosed with tongue cancer? Uh, Randy had a very serious diagnosis of tongue cancer, and selfishly, my first thought was, is he going to be able to sing again? And... Your voice sounds better than ever, I think, so praise God for his healing hand and uh, just for how uh, the Lord has led us through that season of uh, sickness, and we're praying that he leads us out of this season of sickness that we find all of ourselves in now. I went to the COVID unit for the first time yesterday at St. Thomas West and put on the full gown and and, and gloves and uh, sympathies to the family of Sandy Stovall. She uh, was diagnosed with COVID, and um, two hours after I prayed with her, she, she died and transitioned to the next life and uh, made that, that move. So uh, sympathies to Sandy 's family, but this, this disease is real, and it is deadly, and we don't know why God would allow things like this to happen, but we trust that he remains a good, good father, and that we are his beloved children. And somehow, some way, he is working all things for our good, and for his glory. So we believe that. We claim that again. The promises of scripture are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be encouraged. Have you been on a mission trip? Anybody here been on a mission trip? I know Calvin's been on a few. Lee Ellen's been on a few. Carlos, you you, you, and Lee Ellen and Calvin and others have led your share of mission trips. I've had the privilege of going on over 30 mission trips, and I don't say that to brag because here that's not really a big deal compared to like the Duns and and several of you career missionaries, but uh, I love mission trips. It's been a big part of my life, very formative experiences going out to the mission field, and some of you may not know what I mean uh, when I say mission trips. It's kind of one of those church lingo kind of words, but uh, some churches call them mission engagements or mission journeys, but it's all the same thing. We're talking about these short-term excursions into a place that is different from the normal context of a a group of people where they normally would live and serve and work. And uh, we know that there's a biblical precedent for these kind of trips. Uh, We're going to see in the book of Acts how Paul and his partners were sent time and time again, commissioned by the Holy Spirit sent out by the Holy Spirit through the church, the local body that acts as a sending agency. And we know that Woodmont has a long history of sending mission teams around the world to play their part in God's redemptive purposes. We don't send teams to bring Jesus to these places. We send teams to join Jesus in what he's already up to there in those locations. And we don't go to to, to fix people that are broken. We don't go even really to help people as privileged people that we are. We go to serve and to act as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. There's a, a big difference there. and we, we try to make sure that it's not like when helping hurts that we actually do more good than harm for the local people that we go to serve. Last week, we saw how the church in Antioch obeyed the Spirit's call and they set apart Paul and Barnabas for a mission journey. They laid hands on them and they, they sent them, God sent them through the church to Cyprus. We saw that uh, last week. We're going to see the rest of that first mission journey in Acts chapter 14 today as we continue to see the unstoppable church, the, the, the church that Jesus foretold that nothing would prevail against it, not even the gates of hell. Sometimes people think of mission trips as you know, fun adventures, I love to travel, so selfishly I like trying interesting foods and eating what the locals eat and going shopping in the markets and bringing stuff back for my kids. That's okay, I think that's, that's fine to, I'm not saying that, you know, that's the only reason we go on a mission trip, but uh, some people assume it's just gonna all be a barrel of laughs, maybe we'll do some service project or work in a church or something, but it's just gonna be some little, uh, you know, fun little jaunt. Mission trips don't always work that way. I've been on some uh, pretty rough experiences uh, on mission trips. One time I actually called 911 with one hand while holding a homeless man in the middle of Jackson Square, New Orleans. Uh, On his side, he'd just been pistol whipped in the face and was bleeding from his fractured nose and uh, was unconscious. And I was holding him on his side while calling the ambulance with my other hand. I've been in the hospital numerous times with students who were sick or injured. We had a girl break her wrist in Spain. We had a guy get acute cellulitis. in his, I didn't know what that was, but apparently it can kill you. Uh, in his leg in Puerto Rico, we had one big football player guy who was busting up tiles in New Orleans and hit a tile back into his shin and split his leg open. And I don't do well with stuff like that, so I'm glad that we had some uh, nurse types on that trip that were much more uh, equipped to handle that than I was, but uh, I've lost luggage, of course. We've had flights get canceled. I'll never forget riding in the back of a bus in Guatemala a couple years ago, Carlos, with uh, Bobby Dunn and Lynn Weiser was holding the luggage uh, back from falling on precious Bobby Dunn. And I said, This is an interesting way to start a trip. I've been pickpocketed on a subway in Spain, uh, had all these, you know, tough. Times, let's not even get into the inevitable stomach issues that arise on these trips every time it seems like we go on them. But all of that pales in comparison to what Paul and Barnabas go through on this trip. They preach the gospel, remember, across the entire island of Cyprus to no avail. Finally, at the very end of, of that trip on Cyprus, they find one man who's willing to give his life to Christ, one convert. This was a pretty unproductive trip so far, and then they press on north to Asia Minor, but it was all too much for young John Mark, remember, who bailed and and went back home. And you see on this map here, Gabe, go to the map. Do we have the map? There it is. (laughs) Uh, Gabe's first time, I think, doing this. Thank you, Gabe. We appreciate you. Uh, speaking of Randy Perkins, Gabe Perkins running the slides. They were sent out from Antioch. They went over to Seleucia, got in a boat, with the Salamis, Paphos, this is the island of Cyprus. Then they went up to Asia Minor. That's where John Mark bailed on them at that point. Then, now we're gonna see them go up to Pisidian Antioch. It's a different Antioch. There was a king of Syria who named 10 cities after his father Antiochus, thinking that would be a great idea. That, that's a terrible idea, it's very confusing. Uh, but we're gonna see what happens in uh, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Well, actually we're not, that's the rest of chapter 13. They had great success in Antioch, and then they got run out of town, and they, they shook the dust of their feet off uh, over the people in, um, in Pisidian Antioch. So they go over to Iconium now. Iconium is in the region of Galatia. Anybody heard of Galatians, the letter? It was written to these people many years later. And at first, in Iconium, they have great success. Again, like they did in Antioch. Uh, Look at verse one of chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. All right, we got both Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ, becoming one family. It's a beautiful thing. But as usually happens after the Spirit moves in a way like this in Acts and in our lives as well, persecution inevitably follows behind. Look at verse two. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Persecution comes against Paul and Barnabas and the new believers, so what do they do? Do they get out while the getting's good? No, look at verse three. So they remained, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Oh, that God would perform signs and wonders through the hands of our saints here. We long to see that. I love how counterintuitive and countercultural this is. Great persecution arose against them, so they stayed for a long time. It's so opposite of what I would think. Things get tough, opposition comes, and they say, perfect, this is right where we need to be. As my friend Brad says a lot of times, if you're not bumping up against the devil sometimes, it could be because you're going in the same direction, right? Little opposition is a good thing. There's a certain kind of dogged uh, determination and perseverance that we're gonna see on display time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Uh, does anybody know this word? Put up that word, Gabe. Anybody know what that says? Yeah, there you go, stick Sometimes you see it this way with the hyphens. Go to the next one, there we go. stick I thought this was kind of a made-up word, but it's a real word. It's in the dictionary, and it actually uh, was first used in the 1850s. This goes back a long time. This, this word stick means a resolute determination to stick to the task no matter what. Anyone here ever run a marathon? I've run exactly one marathon. I'm David, Stephen, I'm not surprised. Uh, I, I probably will never run another one again. <laughs> but you know as an endurance athlete that there's this voice in your head that tells you, hey, you should stop. <laughs> You're miserable, you can't go any further, you need to quit. And, and great athletes, great competitors learn to tell that voice, shh, be quiet, I'm fine, my body's fine, I've prepared for this, I've trained for this, I'm gonna keep pushing forward. That's the kind of resolute stick that we see from Paul and Barnabas here in this chapter. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church many years after this in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse eight and nine. We are afflicted in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken by the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Isn't that amazing, that kind of stick How often do I wanna give up? How often do I want to despair? How is Woodmont ever gonna move forward? What is COVID gonna do to our church? How are we ever gonna make our budget? What are we gonna do? Paul says, we may be perplexed, but we don't despair. We know who's never going to leave us or forsake us. We may be struck down, but we are never destroyed. Even if we die, it's just a victory lap into the next life. We know that for us to live is Christ and die is gain. Do you believe that? I do. Paul and Barnabas weren't fazed by the persecution that was coming their way, but they weren't reckless either. They weren't foolish, they were born again, not born yesterday, right? Eventually they made the wise decision to leave Iconium. Look at verse four through seven here. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Isn't it fascinating how the gospel has a way of making both friends and enemies out of both sides? In verse 1, we just saw how both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, were coming to faith in Christ. This beautiful, you know, message is unifying. It passes cultural and racial and ethnic barriers. And here we see in in verse five that other Jews and other Gentiles wanted to kill them. (laughs) Instead of receiving the gospel, they just wanted to kill them. And of course, Paul and Barnabas are brave. I mean, they're so resolute in, in the face of horrible opposition, but again, they're not foolish, so they head out for Lyconia. So how are things going so far on this mission journey? At this point, Paul and Barnabas have been run out of the last two towns that they've been preaching in. I'm sure they were discouraged. I'm sure I would have been tempted to say, you know what, guys, Uh, it's not really working like we thought. It's probably time to pack up and head home and regroup. But instead, they just keep going. They go to the next town, Lystra, where things get really intense. Lystra was a frontier outpost. Caesar Augustus had made it a Roman colony in 6 BC. It was kind of the most eastern point of the fortified Roman cities in that region. So it's kind of like an old west town. It's kind of a a barbaric. The people were descended from barbarians. And the Lyconian people had their own culture, they had their own language, they were mostly uneducated, they weren't like the people of Athens or anything, they were much more rugged and and rural and wild. There's no synagogue there. So Paul and Barnabas, usually they would come to the synagogues and and use the Hebrew scriptures to explain the gospel. They're kind of working from scratch here with the people of Lyconia. So things start out really well. Verse 8, look at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, again, looking intently, the stare of Paul was one of his spiritual gifts. Staring intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking oh, I wish that I would be so in tune with the Holy Spirit and so prepared that I wouldn't have to be looking at my notes and that I could just in the middle of a sermon discern that one of you needed healing and I could just speak a word of healing over you in the middle of a sermon and you would be healed and jumped up. That's exactly what Paul does here. And the formerly lame person springs up and starts walking around. Evan is on the phones I think right now, our new uh, student minister, but in youth ministry we call that an attention grabber. (laughs) That's an attention uh, getter during a sermon when somebody is miraculously healed. What a beautiful object lesson for the gospel. They, They don't have the Hebrew scriptures but they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works signs and wonders. So now that everyone's paying attention, Paul can now go into detail about how God made the world good and how sin wrecked everything and how God has a plan through his son to redeem this fallen world back into himself. We call that the gospel. There was only one problem. The Lyconians had a local legend that one day uh, Zeus and Hermes came down to the, the hill country around Lyconia and they knocked on a thousand doors, seeking lodging and and shelter and food. And they were told no a thousand times until they went to the home of an elderly couple who took them in and fed them. And immediately their old little cottage was transformed into a beautiful temple and they became the priest and priestess in that temple. And the other thousand homes where they were rejected were destroyed. So the Lyconians have this idea of who the gods are in the back of their heads. Now see what happens here in uh, verse 11. They were determined not to make the mistake that they'd heard about in this legend. So they go all out for Paul and Barnabas. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, verse 11, there it is, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. I would be kind of offended if I was Paul. Why does he get to be Zeus? Zeus was Barnabas, Paul was Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They're speaking Lyconian. Luke, who wrote this book, remember, he tells us specifically they're speaking Lyconian. So I bet at first, you know, Paul and Barnabas are thinking, hey, these people are really nice. They're really receiving us well here. You know, we're not gonna get run out of town maybe this time. But when the priest of Zeus comes with oxen with ceremonial garland on them to sacrifice to them, they're horrified. Look at verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments just to show them we're just people like you. And they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Paul uses this as a jumping off point for a sermon. He thinks, okay, they think we're gods. Uh, We can use this and we're going to preach the gospel. Look at the rest of verse 15. We're also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. He's calling himself a vain thing. Put not your trust in mortal men. It's not gonna help you we have no power to help you. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's using this language of kind of natural theology, we call it, of just general revelation of what God has done in the natural world to help these uneducated people understand the the foundation of the gospel. Then he starts to explain the gospel as a a new thing that God is doing in this current age look at verse 16 in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness but before Paul can get to the heart of the gospel God's work of salvation through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, the people can't help themselves. They just can't restrain themselves from worshiping Paul and Barnabas, who they are convinced are Zeus and Hermes. Look at verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. You know, our enemy, has many ways of preventing people from hearing the truth of the gospel. And the people of Lystra, maybe they wanted to receive the divine, they wanted to do the right thing, but their preconceived notions of who God was got in the way. A lot of times we want to know God, we want to receive his truth, his revelation, but only on our terms, only if it fits with what our worldview is. We're not willing to let everything go and accept the real truth that God has for us. You know, the people of Lystra said their fundamental reality was that there were all these gods. Zeus was the king and and Hermes was his messenger and that's how the world was made and ruled. So they they tried to squeeze what Paul was saying to fit their own theology, their own deeply held idolatry that they're not willing to lay down and let go of. You know, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he was heralded as the coming king, as the Messiah. People rushing to shout his praise, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're waving palm branches and putting their cloaks down before him. And then Jesus starts to teach in the temple and he says things like, yeah, I, I have to die. And people are saying, what? You're, you're supposed to be the king. You're kind of this ratty, homeless guy anyway who's a carpenter. I'm out. And people started walking away from him. Because the cross didn't fit their preconceived notions of what a Messiah should be. They had no room in their understanding of a deliverer to think that it could possibly involve dying a criminal's death on a cross, A short while after they welcomed him with palms and praise, they would shout, away with him, crucify him, crucify. Many people today like the idea of Jesus. They appreciate his historical importance, but the gospel isn't about Jesus being an interesting person who might be able to give us some good advice, who might be able to help us live our lives better. It's about a king coming here to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he rules over his kingdom. The problem is, Tim Keller says we don't want a king. We're taught, especially in this country, that kings are bad. We want a consultant, Keller says, in the person of Jesus to advise us as we order our lives. Lloyd Ogilvie said, Jesus in our culture is a, a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he is a custom, but not the true Christ, a captured hero of a casual, civil religion, but not Lord of our lives. We all tend to do this. You know, we tend to cut Christ down to size to where he can fit into the straitjacket of our idol that we want to worship that way he's always safe and he's always at a distance and we don't have to come face to face with the terrifying reality of the lion of judah whose call to us is take up your cross and follow me it's a call to come and die again not a very popular message in our world so Paul and Barnabas are receiving this praise from the people, and they could have easily said, well, this sure beats stoning. Let's let them whine us and dine us for a while, and then we'll use that to kinda tell them the truth later. I think I would have been tempted to do that. But instead, they give them the truth, the reality of the gospel, and now they're in big trouble. They refuse to receive the worship that was rightly due to the Lord of hosts alone and that Lyconians are starting to understand that they can't fit what Paul and Barnabas are saying into their preconceived notions, then they gotta get rid of them. Look at verse 19. Notice how quickly the, the crowd changes like it did in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You know, stoning is a barbaric practice. You know, normally they would bind someone's hands and throw them off an, an embankment and hurl heavy rocks onto them until they die. And Paul is, is going through that. I wonder if as the rocks come crashing against his skull and against his body, I wonder if he remembered Stephen's martyrdom, uh, a stoning in which he participated. I wonder if he thought back to that. And as he goes unconscious, I'm sure, like Stephen, he probably surrendered his spirit to the Lord and thought, this is it, this is how it ends for me. And the the disciples gather around him. Look at verse 20, this is interesting. You see what happens uh, to Paul as, as they all think he's dead as well. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. They're probably around him to mourn him. This guy's cut down in his prime. He was such a man of God. Uh, God was, you know, it put his spirit in Paul and was doing amazing things. What a tragedy! And then one eye opens, another eye opens. His lungs fill with air, and he says, "I'm not dead yet." <laughs> he says, "No funeral today. Let's let's just keep going. Let's just keep going." What a powerful image that would have been to the the people of Lystra. I wonder if if. The people who saw this, saw this man caked in blood, caked in dirt, get up and dust himself off and go right back to the city. I wonder if there was a boy there, a boy who we would learn later would become Paul's protege. A boy whose mom, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, would become believers in the gospel. A boy who would become a powerful preacher himself eventually. We know that Timothy was from Lystra. Timothy was in this town at that time. So the the courage, again, the stick-to-itiveness of the apostles was on full display everywhere they went. You know, from put that map back up, Gabe. Can you get to the map again? To get from Derby, which was, you know, the, the farthest easternmost point, back to Antioch would have been a pretty quick overland route. But they didn't go back to Antioch this way. They decided to backtrack every single city that they'd been to in order to check on these church plants there. Look at verse 21. When they preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and made many disciples, what's our mission, to make disciples? They'd made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Their message is, it's gonna be hard, but persevere, stick to it. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They set up healthy leaders, mature, wise shepherds who can take care of the flock, both theologically and and, and pastorally. And they make sure that all these church plants are, are rocking and rolling. Then they head home, verse 24. They'd passed through Pisidia and come to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, where they had already been, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. They do skip Cyprus this time. Where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. I love mission trip report night. We used to always have mission trip report night where we hear about what God has done because it strengthens the hearts of believers and encourages us about what God is doing around the world. Paul and Barnabas give the full rundown of all the ups and downs of their first missionary journey and I'm sure the result was praise and worship for all that God had done through them opening a door of faith to the rest of the world. The witness of the good news of Jesus Christ is now going places it had never been before. And God's salvation is reaching all new kinds of people in all new kinds of ways. The kingdom's breaking in, lives are being transformed for eternity. So the question for us is what are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? Is Jesus really more of a consultant to us that helps us make choices that will be beneficial to us? Or have we surrendered all to a good, good father and said, I am your child, God, I'm here to serve you. I'm taking up my cross and dying to myself every day in order that you may live in me more fully. Is is Christ our life or is he just something else that we add to our lives? Is he part of our lives? I like golf, I like Jesus, I like tennis. Is that how it works? If he is our lives, then let's give all that we are, let's give everything that we are away for the sake of his mission to bring his kingdom to earth. The example of Paul and Barnabas reminds me that that beautiful sentiment from Theodore Roosevelt. We'll close with this. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Let's pray. Lord God, please help us to get off the sidelines and into the game. God, we all know people who are lost and searching. Place a burden on our hearts, O oh God, a burning passion to, to share the gospel with them, to minister to them. Help us to continue to meet needs in order to bring your kingdom here. Help us to dare greatly, to be bold with how we witness to the grace of of the word that we know is taken root in our hearts and share that with others. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're gonna sing a song of response, how deep the Father's love for us. If you need to make a decision today, if you need to accept Christ as Lord, there's no better time to do so than right now. Maybe you realize Jesus has just been a consultant to you and you're ready to make him Lord of your life and give all that you are to him. Maybe you just need to renew your life. You've been chasing after things of this world. You're ready to make a, a priority shift. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church. We've had two people join the last two months. It's just amazing to see in this time how that happens. Whatever it is you need to do, um, encourage you to do that during this time. Let's stay in our seats. I'm not gonna invite you to come forward, uh, but we will stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us. Please deal with the Lord honestly during this time.